Welcome back to Love, Life, and Legacy, the podcast dedicated to helping you navigate these hypersexualized times. And in today's episode, I have somebody on the podcast that, you know, sometimes you have friends that you forget how much you love and appreciate them until you see them again and you're like, oh, you, yes, you're great. That was my experience, as it always is, in this episode with Kayleigh Moffitt. Um, she's a champ. She's a real champ in all respects. And we go into purity, how it was taught in the past. We talk about how she prepared well for the blessing. We get into how God, the female aspect of God is working in sexuality. It's just a wild, robust conversation that if you miss it, if you don't continue in full, you will be losing at life. The only way to get a full and proud and bold W in life is by listening to this episode in full. Please enjoy my talk with Kayleigh Moffat. All right, everybody. Oh my God. It's working. Okay, welcome back. I thought this was not working. Some evil force tried to stop this encounter from happening, but you can't stop a good thing if it's destined to happen. And this is destined to happen. I have... Can I call you a friend? I just had a conversation about this with the Heinen team today about how embarrassed I was when I introduced somebody in front of a big group of people as my best friend. And he's like, actually, I don't think... You're not my best friend. And I was like, oh... Well, then you're not my best friend. So I rescinded the whole thing. So before I just go out there into the entire world and say that you're my friend, can I just check with you? Are you my friend? We we are totally friends. And you're also my brother. One step deeper than that. Yes. Amazing. So this is my friend and my sister, Kayleigh Moffitt, the first. And do you have a middle name? It's June. My oh, daughter's. get out of here. Yeah. Is that a... Is that a like you have a deep meaning behind June or you just like to recycle names? Well, June, my mom gave me that name. She was a missionary to Iran for a few years <laughs> and she learned Farsi. And so the word Junam is kind of like a term of endearment. So I would say Andrew Junam, Kayla Junam, like that you just added on. And when okay. I was born, my mom started calling me Kayla June out of habit. And my dad liked it so much that they made it my middle name. So I pass it on to my first daughter. So consensually, it was like, oh, I want to capture this and, and put it on the birth certificate. Yeah, my name was fully changed legally, yep. Okay, because my dad put a hyphen in my sister's between her first and second name without telling my mom, like while she was recovering from birth. And that oh, became a, a very, to this day, it's it's very divisive. Anyway, so I'm glad it was all consensual. And Kayla, we were going over this prior to recording, but I would rather just you say it. Because either way, any way I say it, I'm going to screw it up somehow. So I know you personally as a really cool person, but professionally, I know you as the maker of machines, like human machines, like these great systems where people get, like in Maryland, it was like this beautiful thing. I don't know if you know this, but we just hired Melissa as our high nude representative in Latin America oh, because that's... of how awesome she was. Because of you, you 
taught her how to be a machine maker. So I know you like from that level, but you've also been bouncing around with a lot of different roles. So what are you presently serving as? I am the president of Women's Federation for World Peace USA. It also comes with an international vice president title for North America, which maybe sounds cooler than it is. I don't know. <laughs> and I'll add that I'm in the process of becoming a certified life coach, uh, honing my skills there. But most importantly, Andrew, which is what I was going to say, is I'm a wife and a mom of three. That's the mm. most important title to my name. And permanent, the most permanent. Nobody can fire you from that. I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, yeah. And you you take that role very seriously. What does it what does it mean to be a mom for you? Like when you're like going full mom and you're like all in, you're like, I'm gonna mom the crap out of today. What is that what does that look like when Kayla is like full mom? Are you like the kind of let's play kind of mom or are you like the let's go on an adventure? Are you like let's draw or what kind of what kind of mom does comes out of you when you're in full mom mode yeah well i like to have something to do together at least in my mind like okay this is what i'd like to do this is what i'd like to talk about this is the activity i'd like to do david is the adventurer every saturday morning he wakes up with like an itch that's got to be scratched like let's go out and do something and i'm like let's Uh. just like stay at home and relax and not see people but for good balance so we do, like, even just during the week, I've started including this one hour from four to five where I ask the kids to help me in the kitchen with cooking and cleaning and just spending time together. So I'm a doer and I like to do with my kids. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, some people like to chill and I always feel like I'm failing as a parent if I'm chilling. I don't know why it's some insecurity I have. So I like, oh, we're not doing something. So I'm a doer. By default. But if left to my own devices, I wouldn't do as much. So I hear you. And quick question. Does David still get donuts every Saturday morning? At the Amish market. Wow, that's incredible that you can remember that. Not so much lately because soccer happens on Saturday mornings now. Mm. But his new thing is Taco Tuesday. We have this really great taco place, which is like half off on Tuesdays. And, Mm. And he loves it. He's trying to like build a little community around this taco place. He told all our neighbors about it, and now they're all doing it too. (laughs) You know, that's becoming a real thing. I was walking down the street one day, I didn't know what day of the week it was, and someone was like, Happy Taco Tuesday! And I was like, that's not, it's not Christmas, it's just, anyway. (laughs) Close. Probably just like a low, low dip in restaurant sales, so they created it, anyway, whatever. It's not conspiracy theory time. It's working well. It is. And quick note about Kayla's husband. He can eat whatever he wants and he has like a superhero body and he's and I and I hate him for it. And he's so nice that I hate him even more. Cause like you want to be able to hate somebody freely, but he won't let you because he's just such a great guy. I know. Uh, I know, ugh. man. I'm the one who like gained forty pounds after having three kids and he hasn't gained a single pound since we married. It's amazing. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna come to your house one day and give him my fat, if that's okay with you. Yeah, can you teach me too? Right. <laughs> sure there's a machine these days. So let's, I want to I wanna get into, you have 
to me a great story or history of what I've, what I've observed of you, of somebody who lives with intentionality and somebody who's an owner. This is like part of the talks that, you know, we just gave a talk at Sun Moon a few days ago. And, and one of the talks that I always give is ownership, understanding ownership. And a lot of that is just taking responsibility, right? If you feel responsible for something and you become an owner. But I want to, I have a few kind of questions that I want to pull out of you because I feel like you have a great testimony. Starting with, like, when you were growing up, do you... How, how important was practicing purity and like, what did that look like? Because you were going to workshops probably, like so many people who are listening to this and they were saying, here's how you should live your life, but it's not as easy to kind of live as it is to go to a half day workshop, right? So yeah. um, what was it like um, living with purity and how important was it for you? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a complex question and answer and I feel like I'm grateful that I was raised with this mentality of purity and it's very interesting trying to pass it on to my kids right how I talk about it because in our culture I had both positive and negative experiences around how we talk about purity and growing up you know very strict at workshops girls sit here boys sit here you know and if you get too close to a boy, then the leaders start to talk to you and, you know, make <laughs> boundaries and rules. And, you know, my mom was pretty strict about that kind of thing, too. I didn't have brothers growing up. I only had one older sister. So for me, I didn't have a lot of exposure to boys because I lived in this little bubble. Most of my friends were church members, that kind of thing, until I got older. And, you know, I think it protected me, it like instilled certain habits that I still keep to this day, my awareness. But I think as I get older, and I'm talking about passing this on to my kids, I'm also recognizing that there were some aspects of that culture, which were harmful to mm. those who were raised in the church. And I think sure. you can see that in my peers, those who have distanced themselves or left or have, you know, reasonable resentment and damage. Um, and the one thing that I'll just like add with here that is encouraging to me is that I see a shift, even starting from true mother. I read a speech from her recently where she, she talked about this. She talked about how like we, we, we taught second generation about the fall, but actually that's not how we should have taught them. We should have taught to them through the ideal of creation, like let them mm -hmm. go into nature and experience it and let their original minds and hearts speak to them about how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to be raising our children. So it's encouraging, but at the same time, you know, we, I think we've got some work to do to unravel some of the pieces of the past. Absolutely. Yeah. We kind of divided that into two, like Purity 1.0 was a list of all the don'ts yeah. and it was really kind of like a defensive energy and protective and restrictive and t purity 2.0 is like building yourself into the person that you want to be. Like, so aligning yeah. yourself with your ideals, your values. And that sounds exactly like where, what Truman is talking about, which is very cool. Yeah. Because you can tell it's a very different energy because you're fighting for something. If you, if you have some sense of what you want, it's like you're delaying gratification in the immediate short term for greater satisfaction over the long term, which is, a stoicism that's becoming very popular in society anyway, because we've dabbled, dabbled with like 
you know, willy-nilly, whatever goes. And that seems to have ended in a giant quagmire of disaster, right? So yeah. then, you know, you had a mixed bag experience, but why did you, why did you ultimately kind of go the way that you go? Because you, you kind of wait, you waited, you know, you, you got blessed and you said like a bunch of your peers, peers didn't. So like, what was it that compelled you to follow this path? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was fortunate because I think the last few years of my high school time and into college, I became the youth pastor of our community. And I think there's something very different about being responsible. You use this word owner at the beginning of this. And I think when you're responsible for others, you are always thinking about them, right? Always preparing for them. Mm. And you're not just thinking about yourself. And mm. I also had a community of others, you know, my age who were thinking like that. And I really think it made a difference in my processing during those years, which is typically where I think you might see people making different decisions and shifting because of the environment that they're in. So instead of having experiences that were pulling me away from those like core fundamental beliefs, I had experiences that drew me even deeper, like real God experiences, witnessing young people transforming their hearts and breaking through and overcoming really challenging situations at home. And that was about as real as it, it got. So like nothing else really was as attractive as as that. I knew that was something I wanted to stay close to. And, you know, obviously that's transferred in all other areas of my life. Yeah, I like that. So if you were just a passive recipient of workshops and stuff like that, do you feel like maybe it would it could have gone a different way? It was in part due to the fact that you were giving back and you felt responsible to other people that helped you stay aligned with the person that you wanted to be? And even that vision stayed clear because you were giving? Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. And I I would agree with it that it certainly changes it, right? If you're just forced to go to workshops and go to youth group or whatever it is, you are sitting back and you can kind of roll your eyes at stuff. But when you suddenly have to teach it to somebody, you have to really question, okay, what is real about this? What do I actually believe about this? Because you can't get up there and just like pretend and, you know, put on a show. But it definitely, you know, we'd be preparing for like divine principle study and we would have to study it ourselves. Like, okay, what do we actually think about this? What do we actually want to pass on to people? And it definitely deeply ingrained in us. And I would say, you know, that's my experience too, like in youth group. Andrew used to be my pastor, so he maybe he remembers some of this stuff. But there was when kids became seniors in high school, we'd have them apprentice in youth group where they would kind of take on a certain level of responsibility. And I saw in that practice many of those young people stayed on for many years because of that life giving experience, the ownership aspect. So I would say, yeah, I think it's kind of a, a universal practice we should be studying a little bit more. Uh, I I can see it. I mean, the the process that I can see very clearly in somebody's just journey towards sexual integrity, right? As an example, which is yeah. somebody who's subservient to bad habits. They work on themselves and then 
it's like a bandwidth issue. It seems like the more that somebody frees up their heart and mind from tormenting themselves, let's say you're spending so much energy hating yourself, doing self-destructive habits, you get better at changing those. Now you have more bandwidth to give to others. And in our work, it's like the people that then graduate from, wow, I feel a lot better too. Now I want to help others. Those people do much better over the long run. Some yeah, other people, and we don't, you know, everybody to each their own. And some people are just busier than others. Some people just kind of get stable in their life and then they bolt and then we just never see them again. And we're, we're happy to help in any way we can. But for sure, there's something magical about the process of bequeathing into income yeah. inheritance that is lost if you if you don't take the time to help educate people or help listen to people or whatever that is it's life-giving it's to give life is life-giving you know it's that reciprocity well it's like the the universal law that if you give you receive and that's i mean your example is interesting you're applying it to a certain area that if you give within this area right you receive even more and you do even better as a result of it it's one of those things like we were taught growing up but do we really get it? You know, do we really get how fundamental that is and kind of how powerful it is? Giving <laughs> yeah. your life is improved. Yeah, everybody everybody gets it until they have to do it. And they're like, wait a second, <laughs> but I, I want to keep my money. I don't want to give it away to, right, you know. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, going to high school, there are other humans. You went to human high school, yeah? I did, yes, with many. Okay. So, and, and, and with humans and you're growing up, there's hormones, there's, you know, all sorts of drama in school and this and that, there's boys, girls stuff, there's all sorts of stuff. So how is it that you were able, because in that environment, let's say you're going to youth ministry on a Thursday, but then Monday to Friday during the day, you're away from that environment, you're away from your church friends. Like, how were you able to kind of stay steadfast in, you know, just getting through that whole experience. Cause this is like a high school and college just eats a lot of people up. Yeah. They start off one way and they end up in a completely different place because somewhere along the way, they just get absorbed by the culture that they're inundated with every day. So like, how did, how did you survive that? Yeah. I mean, it's a real, issue what I think which I saw with a lot of people and high school was the first time I went to a public school I had gone to New Hope Academy up until then and it was a huge high school so it was kind of shocking I think to adjust to that and and figure out my bearings you know when I think about high school Kayleigh like I don't I don't she's crazy she's she's some special and I don't know <laughs> Anyways, I feel like a very different person, but I had a certain drive in me, a certain like calling, and I was not afraid of it. It's kind of amazing that I, yeah, anyways, I started a club in my high school called the You Choose Club, and I got, you know, one of the teachers to sponsor, and it was funny because like the teacher I got I wouldn't have ever imagined that he would support. It was basically supposed to be like an abstinence club and a service club. I don't know what I was thinking, Andrew. But anyways, I did it. And, you know, it came out in the announcements. I wrote the announcements. So every day after school, you know, would come and we had our first meeting. And 
you know, there were a few other members of our church who were in that high school. So, of course, they came. But also there were a handful of others who heard the announcement and said, yeah, I want that kind of community. And so we did service projects together and we started to plan every year. Because at that time, actually, I think I was on the wait team, the Washington AIDS International Teams. And we did a lot of, you know, education around AIDS and abstinence. And so on World AIDS Day, which I think is December 1st, we would hold an AIDS Awareness Day in the school. It, it became a big thing. We had huge assemblies and teachers would sign up their classes to come to it. And I organized it for my school. It was like, you know, a 4,000-person school. And we taught about abstinence, and we had guest speakers come into classrooms about AIDS and things like that. So, yeah, I don't know that girl anymore. It's kind of crazy, but I, I feel like there was a different energy around me that protected me. And and to this point that you're talking about, like the ownership point and the, the leadership aspect of it, is because I was so busy doing that, then there wasn't any question. And I, re- I remember one time some girl was sitting in front of me in class and she just randomly turns around. I don't know her at all. And she goes, Keele, I heard you you don't date people. And I was like, yeah, I don't. And she was like, why? You know, so like this kind of rumor started spreading around the school and I had to answer all sorts of questions about my lifestyle and why I was the way it was. And for the most part, you know, people were open and people accepted it. And it was kind of empowering to just get it out there and to not have to, like, hide behind it and be worried or try to pretend a different answer. So, yeah, my boldness protected me. My my leadership protected me and, you know, my community. Absolutely. You had some conviction that you didn't really know where it came from. Are you a righteous person by nature? Yeah, I I like things to be right. <laughs> yeah. You know, many dictators have said the exact same. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> things must be very right according to my rules. Yeah. But I, I know... Be- I mean, great people think the same as well. It's just like convicted people change the world. And if you have convictions that are altruistic, then the world gets better, which it sounds like it did. So you were like, I mean, that's really a fantastic point because, again, part of the, I keep on mentioning because I just gave it, but like the idea of having multiple lives is impossible to sustain because you're just one person. So eventually the house of cards will fall apart, right? At some point. And you just kind of went out there and said, Hey, this is who I am. And that's risky, right? You could, I mean, so socially there's a risk to be made fun of, to be a weirdo, to be whatever. But um, ultimately it was a net, Plus, yeah, you'd say? Yeah, I mean, even in like my, I was part of the dance team in my high school and it protected me and people supported me. And actually, I think what the interesting thing about it is that by being more open, I learned many of them also felt the same way, right? And many of them would not speak about that in public. 
for fear of kind of being classified, but we kind of naturally found each other. We were drawn to each other because I was so open about it. That's so cool. I really mad respect y'all, as they say. Uh, you know, the kids at your school. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, you become then the de facto voice of a group of people who just, like you said, felt the same but didn't have the guts to say so. And that's the power of speaking up. So that's, yeah, really cool. So let me ask you, let's shift a little bit to, to the blessing. Didn't you get blessed pretty young? Yep. What age? I was nice. Ooh, I mean Benji. That's same as Benji. So, I mean that's you know that's no. I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say, but don't worry, you're not a weirdo. Benji talks about it all the time. It's seems like it. It. I was talking to somebody last week about his blessing situation, and he's kind of getting ready. He's feeling more ready, and he's 25. And 25 is you can feel really old and really young depending on your perspective. And then we really both came to the conclusion that age, uh, in terms of blessing, is really about maturity. It's not about some fixed age point. It's just like you could be, you could be thirty-five and be a child and be completely ill-equipped for the blessing, and you could be nineteen, Kale, and be ready for the blessing. So, why? How did that come about? Like you're just out of high school, yeah. And you're like, hey, I I just finished high school. I need a husband. <laughs> like, how, how does that work? You just felt like it made sense, or was there was there extenuating circumstances? What, what what was going on? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I was part of a phase in the church where it was soon after Father stopped doing matchings, so it was it was kind of a a new thing. And I think in, at that time, too, like the culture was to get blessed and matched early. It was pretty acceptable. Nowadays, it, most people take more time to kind of develop and grow and get more aware of who they are, which is great. <laughs> but it was kind of the norm that as soon as you became an adult and graduated high school, that you now start looking for a match. And yeah, I think my parents supported me and I will say the whole matching process was the first time I think I, I really got open with my parents and it was hard at first. So I would like write letters about what I was feeling until I could kind of build up the strength to now confess these very intimate things in my heart. And it, you know, it, it happened pretty fast. I think within like a year, my mom and my dad had very different perspectives. My mom wanted a sign from heaven and for it to come through prayer and big providential reasoning behind it. And my dad just wanted me to be happy. <laughs> so we went on it from very different angles. But David, you know, is from my community. We were leading youth group together. He was one of my closest friends. And he also played in a band with my dad before we got matched. So they had already, he already called him Dan and they were already really good friends. So it was, it was pretty natural. And like the, 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 concluding point was you know I explained to my mom like mom you know when you get really stressed out dad kind of helps you right he kind of like brings you down to earth and just supports you even when it's difficult and I feel like David does that for me as my friend you know in all of our yeah. work together and once I said that she was like ah okay 
I get it. No problem. And actually, my dad and David had the same birthday. So there's like a lot of similarities in their personality. So it, yeah, we were really good friends. And so it was very natural and easy to go from point A to point whatever that is. I don't know. <laughs> but what, what initiated all this? Because you're saying that there was some sense that you you needed to be matched or wanted to be matched or was it completely just a sense how did you feel ready or you know how did that work I don't know if I felt ready I don't know if I had that level of like self-awareness I just felt like it was time and it made sense and you know my my life I wouldn't say I followed like everything typically. I didn't go to STF and that was kind of a big deal to not go to STF. But, you know, I was a youth group leader and I was very active. So it just was the next step in my life. And that was part of our culture. And, you know, I was young. David's three years older than me, but we were both young. And it was just, sorry, this is a bad answer, but... It was just the thing that you did, right? It was just the thing that you did. And sure. I'm I'm fortunate because my situation panned out really well. Not everybody from that generation did, but because we both, I, I would say, because we both were such like youth group and public life was such a cornerstone of our relationship and our bonding that it kind of protected us from immaturity and challenges. And we had our, yeah, our challenges for sure. But uh, we we very naturally were always thinking about the bigger picture. So it came into our relationship quite often. I lost you for a second, but it'll be okay. Well, with Riverside, it actually records us separately. So yours is fluid and then we can just patch it up later. It's fine. Okay. And so... You didn't stop being involved after you got blessed. I mean, with, with giving to other people. So that was an important element of you staying focused in high school, right? Was the process of giving. And then you didn't stop that after you got blessed, which is interesting because there is a demographic. I've traveled enough to see it as a worldwide phenomenon. It's not unique to any one community, but there's a demographic that is raptured, you know, and that is those who get blessed, they just kind of disappear. There's, I think, a number of factors, but it seems like you kept on giving through that time period. Is that correct? Yeah, we definitely did. And I, I mean, I guess like it's, it's in my nature. I, I mean, you asked me if I'm a righteous person. I... Now that you've said it, I'm like really thinking, where does it come from? And and I think it's like, you know, there was a time where David and I led together. And then there was a time where he started to fade out of youth group because it wasn't his passion anymore, which is totally fine. It was challenging for us to kind of like navigate, okay, how do you find your calling? How do I support you? But how do I keep doing what I'm feeling called to do? And we had to grow up through that. But I I think because of my my personal experiences with God and I think David has always said that like that aspect of my my nature is something he really appreciates and respects that God is really real to me and I never 
question God's presence in my life. I always felt like I could receive some kind of revelation or some kind of like message about what I was doing or where I needed to go. And I know not everybody has that. So I think I've been very blessed by that. And as a result, I have always felt a strong responsibility that because God is my parent, I have to respond to that because it's a real love. It's a substantial love. And I can't just like sit back and enjoy it. But like for us, we, you know, we started, we even did like couples nights, monthly couples nights where we would organize it once we became blessed. And that's really different to your point. We would like read Hundake together and do marriage enrichment together and things like that. And we, no matter what phase of life we were in, we seemed to organize around that phase. So the couples nights. And I mean, you remember when you guys were here, we, I did the mom's clubs with Uyanga because that was like the life phase that we were in. We needed, I needed that kind of support. So it's always been like, okay, this is where I'm at. How can I build around that? Because it's just, it's my natural calling and I'm experiencing new things and I want to share it with people and kind of build community around it. So it's, it's part of who we are. And the other thing I'm really grateful for about David is, you know, there'd be times where we would not be in like, we would be in a a little bit of like a fight, right? Some kind of difficulty or challenge, but then I would have to go to youth group, right? <laughs> Which is not how you want to go or not how you want to go to a workshop or something like that. And for the most part, he could always in that moment recognize that that was a bigger picture in comparison to like our our little fight that we were having and it's not easy right but we usually could get to the point where like okay remember the bigger picture and let's put this on hold let's support each other and have the right heart going into it so I I've been really grateful for that and even with my crazy life now when I have to travel or things like that it's this kind of heart that we have in approaching those situations that's that reciprocity, though. That That's really a great example because the micro and the macro feed off of each other. So good and bad. So that, like you're fighting and then you're like, oh, crap, now I have to go out and help people. But that can oftentimes, not always, oftentimes put you in such a better mood and you come back a different person. Now you're transformed. Oh. You have a completely different energy than when you left the house, you know, with, you know, I don't know. Is angry. Let's just say angry. Yeah. And then also, you can bring home a lot of your inspiration from outside of the family back to your family, back to your husband, and and give them something that you didn't have before that you got only through the interaction of giving to people. But obviously, we've seen it go the opposite way as well, which is you bring all your stress home and then you bring all your you know, dysfunction from your marriage to your, you know, whoever you're serving. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Um, and so then, obviously, he sounds supportive, but how do you juggle that between, because you're also, okay, you're a righteous person, as we talked about, but you're a person who also believes in providence and big things. Yeah. Right? And the typical stance was in in days of yore that it was that winning in the providence means sacrificing the family that's that's your sacrifice but now that's obviously not the case anymore and 
it's it's got to be win 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 win. Everybody's got to win, otherwise things are off kilter, right? So, how do you juggle big things, providence, responsibilities to your leadership, stuff like that, as well as still being available to your kids emotionally and taking care of your family and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, that's the question, and I, <clears throat> I'm still working on it, obviously, but. I would also say that I think the right level of responsibility came at the right time in my life. And we're kind of atypical because usually it's like the man who is the more public leader, right? And the wife kind of stays back and supports. And actually, I think that works in our favor because I'm the mom and I'm emotionally entangled in my family no matter where I am. I cannot, I don't have boxes. I don't mean to just assume you have boxes, but... Oh, I got many anyway. boxes. <laughs> right. That's kind of the analogy, right? That men have their boxes that they pull out at certain times and women are like the, the wrapped up wires and yarn that you can't unentangle. So no matter, I think it works in our favor that even if I'm off doing big providential work, I'm on stage or I'm talking to the, a former head of state or whatever it is, I, my family is still there. My husband is still there. And I never separate it. <clears throat> I'm not afraid to to tell these high-level leaders, like, yeah, sorry, I got, I'm, I'm going to go pick up my kids now. You know, like, I don't separate those worlds. I don't, you know, some people don't like it, but it just, it is who I am, and I don't separate them. So, you know, early on, I did working with youth and with young people, and that was very easy to translate into my family. Whenever we would do a big workshop, I would bring my whole family. And you know, my last year working for EAM, we started doing leadership trainings where there'd be like a, a children's track. So there would be like a children's workshop simultaneously to try to shift the culture. And my kids loved that. And so that became our habit that we would go as a family. David would be a part of the band for those programs. And we could share those pretty pivotal moments together. Still, he's the one in those moments who's doing most of the child care and taking care of the kids. And luckily, he's like a kick butt dad and super fun, more fun than I am. And <laughs> he has a good attitude about it. And sometimes we'll take a few days off work so that he can, you know, be with the kids more than not just being babysat or things like that. And then as I switched over to like, I don't want to say like more important roles, but higher level working with people, working with higher level people in UPF and now in Women's Federation, that we had kind of built this habit about approaching my providential work as our providential work. It was easier to translate when it was YAM. That was a world that we we understood together and was relevant to us. And what we were building was totally relevant. But now into UPF and Women's Fed, it's not exactly like easy to weave together how that relates to our life and that we had built this habit. And so even when I started working with UPF, that was a huge jump for me from YAM director to UPF. And, you know, David's response to that is like, it's not just your mission, it's it's our mission. And I want to think about it like that. So I feel grateful that I think we kind of grew in our relationship and I grew in my leadership and my responsibility so that we've kind of built these habits where we try to make it our mission. And I think the difference, too, is, of course, I'm calling, you know, while I'm on trips or things like that. But I try to make it a point to 
share with David and get his feedback and his input on on what I'm doing. I don't try to keep it separate. I know that's maybe the advice of people, right? Keep work and home separate, but not for me because I'm a woman and a mom. I purposely enmesh it so that I don't feel, you know, you can get so much fulfillment in work and providence and feel like, wow, God's really working through me and I'm awesome. And wow, you know, I think that's what's happened with a lot of our leaders. And then you come home and your spouse is mad at you or your kids are behaving <laughs> and you're like, yeah. oh, my my spouse needs to deal with that because my mission is more important. Yeah. But don't you know really, who I am? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that can happen for me. And if I come home and my kids are misbehaving, I'm I'm like, you know, this is this is because of me because I was gone for a week. And so let's sit down and like, let's heal as a family. Or if my marriage is off, it's because. I've been too busy. I've been too focused on the providence. So I got to shift the balance. I have to make sure that my family is priority. And the last thing I'll say on this is that, you know, I, I grew up in a generation, like you said, where there was sacrifice and the, our families were sacrificed. And most of my peers have major burden, abandonment issues and things like that because of how our culture was. And is real. And I think I saw it and, you know, I experienced it to a degree, but my parents did a pretty good job. And so early on when I had kids, I knew I didn't want to replicate that, right? I also know that the major leaders' kids are the ones who suffer the most and usually go the furthest astray. And so I'm a major leader and I didn't want that for my kids. So how do we change our culture, right? How do we change separating family from mission? But becoming one is that why your daughter has such a big face tattoo just kidding Sp spreading fake news <laughs> everybody she's like, like eight or, she's nine nine yeah yeah okay yeah um i hear you i hear you and so well so <laughs> i i'm it's very funny because when i'm at an event and especially if i'm speaking or whatever then I am there. I am nowhere else. I am right there. And if somebody's talking to me, I'm there. There's nothing, nothing else exists. And so it's, it's funny to imagine that you could also be doing that at the same time as be like, did I, did I leave the laundry in the laundry machine? It's going to smell moldy by the time I get home or something, you know, like that stuff all just disappears and it's, yeah, just one thing at a time. Yeah. So, okay. So with this, okay, you have the burden of knowledge, the burden of responsibility, right? That you, you know, if you don't move the dial, the dial doesn't get moved, this kind of feeling. And then there's just the humdrum day-to-day, -day, you know, stuff that you got to deal with. But part of that is your relationship with your husband and intimacy, right? Like yeah. really feeling connected. And so how do you maintain intimacy with David when you're going through some sort of stressful period, right? Like your mind is going a million miles an hour and he needs you. How do you bridge that gap? How do you deal with that situation? Or how have you successfully navigated those waters? Yeah. I mean, that's such an important topic. I think also, especially being on the flip side that like I'm the woman in the public role and 
to be honest, sometimes you get caught up in all the masculine energy, right? Like the independence and stuff like that. But in a relationship and intimacy, there has to be, you know, David's the only person who has really seen me at my like weak point, right? Where like, if I'm laying on his chest or laying on his shoulder, I don't do that with anybody, <laughs> even just emotionally, even my girlfriends, right? I don't do that. He's the only person. So I I have to remind myself who I am in the relationship and like come back to this center point of like, this is my husband. But I think that what has really shifted in our relationship, like we talked about, we got blessed really young. And so, you know, to navigate even like your physical relationship at that age, you're there's a lot to figure out. <laughs> there's a lot of like baggage from like, what culture tells you and your expectations and all of that, which was not easy for the first few years. But, you know, we were really good friends, so we navigated it pretty well. But now in our wise old age, <laughs> the narrative that has been developing has really shifted so much. I think especially as a woman, like there's an expectation in our wider society that like men want sex, right? And women have to provide that for their husbands. And my husband isn't like that, but there's there's that narrative around us, whether or not we like it, and it comes into play sometimes. And I, as a young person and being raised in our church with kind of the strict purity culture and all of that, had some damage to overcome about my concept about sex. But when we started to change like our narrative and our conversation to the primary goal being deep intimacy with each other and sex being the natural you know celebration or extension of that it changed so much in both of our relation like our perspective on this kind of really special place between a husband and wife so now you know when we make time to come together it's it's for the goal of intimacy whether or not you know, sex happens, you know, the the goal is not like, check mark, okay, we got it done. <laughs> this is your podcast, right? I can say stuff like that. Yeah, fair game. <laughs> okay. But now it's like, yeah, it, it has become, and I don't know if this is weird to say, but it's become a holy place for us. So much so that like, we naturally, this is funny to say on a podcast, but we naturally feel a calling to pray in those moments like you can feel like wow I really want to welcome God in this place I don't want this to just be a physical thing I want this to be God's holy image of what God meant for a physical relationship not my expectation not my personal physical desire but like and I started you know as a woman especially I think that's harder for women to like really get what that looks like because we have a lot of stuff to work through. But when I started to meditate on like <laughs> Dr. Yang once talked about when you get to heaven, the first thing you should do with your husband is is have sex in front of God in heaven. <laughs> and I was like, what? Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but as weird as it was, uh-huh. it shifted my thinking. Like, how yeah. do I feel about intimacy in front of God? without the shame, without the the hiding, all of that stuff that has come into our culture. And so now, like I said, it's it's shifting into this holy thing. So all that 
all of that is to say that like the point of being in intimacy, the emotional intimacy and physical being a celebration and natural extension of that is is what helps me in kind of balancing my providential brain. Um, now it's not just about a physical relationship, but it's about like this intimate place with my husband, which I also desperately need, right? I can't do all this work if I don't have this at the the foundation of what I'm doing. Otherwise, I'm not being authentic in what I'm talking about and who I'm talking to. Well, yeah, and you're not being powerful because you're not yeah. filling your... I mean, that's at the level of mind, spirit, emotion, and body, right? So I need I need help understanding because, you know, high noon is definitely... The scales are tilted towards men just because that's how things worked out, but we're working on it. Okay, we're working on it, everybody out there, working on it. But in the absence of, you know, vocal women who are willing to not talk about ideals, but even talk about their own life as clearly as and, and openly as you just have, I feel like there's an entire narrative that humanity hasn't explored that we're going down that path and we're like slashing at this forest to understand where we are. But like the, the, what humanity was missing out on by not having God at the center of our sexuality, right? So this is a massive unexplored, it's like how we keep on finding new places in our sea. This is similar with, with our theology and it's really lacking I find from the female perspective, because men are so subjective typically, especially in the arena of sexuality, that women have more been responsive. And this is just clear in culture and porn and all this, which is just very like men dominating, men dominating. But, and also, to be honest, True Father talked a whole heap about sex. And in our book that we compile all of True Parents' words about sexuality, there's a very a limited number of quotes that we could pull from True Mother about the topic topic of sex. So what Chanel Gook's sexuality looks like, what the female side of God looks like in the arena of sexuality is really weak in terms of our understanding. So do you have any any light to shed on that in terms of like how you perceive the the female aspect of God in the area of sexuality, maybe through experience or through your thoughts or your meditations or your studying or whatever? Do you have some something that you can help us understand, help men understand so we can understand women better and also help women understand themselves better? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it's like, I appreciate what High Noon is doing because I think, you know, of course you're working with some women for sure, but it's certainly, I think, helping <clears throat> the men kind of figure out their process and their path and be, you know, on the path they want to be. But I think the path for women is different. And I, if we try to like say, okay, women are also on this path, it's not doing justice to what it means to be a woman. And I have this theory after I, I studied it, I got my master's from UTS and I took this class where it's called DP in depth, and we we looked at DP and kind of flipped it upside down. Like, what are the, the parts that we're not talking about? And so for my final thesis of that class, 
I took the story of the fall and I rewrote it from Eve's perspective. And I think this is the fundamental like starting point to break open whatever this is that we have in our church culture, we have this narrative that the fall was about sex, right? And of course, you can pull out different points. But I think men and women are made differently. And I, I think the story is quite interesting if you can think about it. But I think for Eve, it her fall had more to do with her losing her relationship with God. She forgot that she was God's daughter. She stopped hearing God's voice and listening to God's voice and instead replaced it with Lucifer's voice. She started to listen to that. She started to doubt herself. She started to question like her own intuition, which women have, right? Women have this really fascinating intuition as mothers, especially you just have like, you know, you just know. <laughs> and, but Eve doubted that and she pushed that aside. And then because she doubted it and she felt insecure, she just totally listened to Lucifer and, and obeyed his thoughts and his feelings and kind of gave up her own sense for his sense. That's how I see the fall. And so when it came to their physical relationship, it was more like she became so selfless and didn't think about herself, not in like a I'm better than you, but like her identity as a divine daughter of God. She lost that and could only center in somebody else. So that's how their physical relationship happened. That's my interpretation. But then the story with Adam is probably a little bit different, right? And I think maybe only men can tell that story if a woman comes to you and she's confused and lost and hurt and desperate. It's not like she sneakily was like, oh, I'm going to go have sex with Adam now. That's that's not a woman's point of view. It's I have regret and I have pain and I know what the right thing is to do. So let me go to Adam and things you know, naturally transpire there. So my my point about this in terms of sexuality is that I think for women, it has a lot more to do with with your, I hate the word divinity, and I hate the word with like femininity. I'm the woman's fed president, but I, I hate her with that. <laughs> try, try, let's let's go for let's let's rebrand. Let's do it. What what else can we do instead of divinity? Okay, we've been using the word essence a lot, like the essence of womanhood and it's gets close right it's got a spiritual connotation but it's not too too like up in the clouds but the more that we can like really embrace that the more we can solve i think the pain and the baggage and i've been really diving into mother's words lately where she talks about what it means to be a woman she uses this one analogy where a woman is like a bowl which is not a beautiful image, right? I'm not like inspired by that concept. But the point is that we can hold everything. We can digest everything, no matter how difficult it is, but that women have the power to embrace and to heal. And not all women are there yet, right? But the more I'm tapping into that space of being an embracing woman like True Mother has, the way that she's dealt with all the challenges in her life, humbly and silently without complaining she could complain a lot i mean she could <laughs> oh yeah but she doesn't because she's a true woman because she's got this like divine connection with heavenly mother so i think that's the point to break through with women to really know who you are as a divine daughter of god and how that manifests and, and like not be afraid of it at least that's how i'm seeing it transfer over and it's funny because it feels 
unrelated, right, to sex and intimacy. It could. It could. Of course, not for you because you're like a wise man and you know all. But to me... Everything, yeah. <laughs> to me, if, if I could unlock that as a woman, then it translates so naturally to my intimate relationship, also to my parenting and to everything else. But it's the source. If I'm good with God, if I really know my value and who I am, then I naturally want to embrace my husband. I'm not, I don't have fear. I don't have shame. I don't have doubt. I don't have judgment. I have the embracing nature of our heavenly parent, especially our heavenly mother. I don't know if that helped. Beautiful. I mean, come on, Kayla. That was, that was gold. No, that's, we are, we need to venture into that thought space and we need to understand it more because Honestly, in the absence of that, we go faster and harder in the wrong direction. Yeah. Just out of habit. And the further off you are, the more desperate you are for answers. And you'll accept false substitutes even more. And that makes you even more desperate. And it's this really destructive cycle. So to have some ability to stop and to create space for, for these kind of considerations. So... You know, in terms of culture, it's very clear that, you know, it's completely dominated. And I'm not a feminist, okay? Let's just put that out there. But it's very clear that men have created this culture, like our whole culture, porn, yeah. you know, movies, all those things completely dominated by the, the male perspective. And when you're somebody, let's say you're growing up and everybody in the world tells you you are something. Regardless, like, let's just say you grew up and you're a white person and everybody in the whole world tells you you're green. Regardless of the what your eyes tell you, you will start to see yourself as a green person. Yeah. And that is very similar to, like, women are told who they are. Men are told as well. We tell, you know, we're told there's a lot of evidence to show that, like, basically everybody who's ever died in a war were like men, you know. And there's like there's downsides for both, but in the in the, in the what what we've been telling women about sex is kind of like you're saying like women have been told who they are because there's been a dominant force kind of imposing itself. Yeah. And in order to figure that out, we need to stop for a second, and we really need to figure this out. And what. And separate ourselves from everything that our culture is telling us to figure out what's true and what's not and how to respect each other because it's not easy. It's really not easy. But I, I think that's great. I have I have one more question for you. Try. And that is, I want to know, so we're really hot on the idea of helping people to understand. Like uh, still to this day, we had, a, we had a staff meeting last week here in Korea and this it this irksome phenomenon came up and we all said yes we're sick of this people still call us the porn people regardless of the fact that we help people in many dimensions of their life it's obviously one of the most impactful things that we've ever done because we're talking about something that nobody ever talks about but at the end of the day we were like well who do we want people to know us as and it's we're the people that create radiant blessed couples okay and not that we create it, but we create the space and blah, blah, blah. But that's too hard to fit into a sentence. So, <laughs> uh, But part of that is how do we define a radiant blessed couples? Um, and so I'd love to hear 
at your very best in your relationship with David, um, how how do you radiate? How do you take care of yourself? How do you take care of him? If you could do like three things that you three things that you do in order to have a thriving relationship, I think as as a tip for single people to strive towards and to remember and to write down, and then for people in relationships to start to practice. Because you're very, you know, methodical in many ways, in many aspects of your life, and intentional. So I'm sure you have something. I guarantee it. Oh boy, the pressure is on. Well, I mean, I I like that messaging, and I know you you shared that with me before. So I I hope we can help you have the right image that you guys are doing much more than just dealing with porn, because that's kind of a symptom of the problem and. You're trying to heal the the source here. So, I mean, I think one thing we've learned later in our marriage in terms of methodology is for us to be the best couple, that's actually like the second blessing. So the first blessing is your individual relationship with God and your stuff. I call it my stuff. That's the best word I can use. Good stuff or bad stuff or all the stuff. All the stuff. <laughs> but most of the time when I say it like that, it's my bad stuff, right? The, <laughs> the stuff that I need to deal with. And I I think we're getting more and more in the habit of recognizing if we're having some conflict or we're not communicating well or there's some kind of hurt coming up that we're starting to recognize, actually, that's more something we have to deal with personally with God. And you can't just bring it to each other and you can't just like blame each other or try to solve it because actually it doesn't solve most of it. It puts a bandaid on it. And the real source is like your relationship with God and your own growth. And so we started doing this habit, which is not easy. I don't want to make it seem like, oh, yeah, we're like perfect. And whenever we conflict, we're like, oh, let's just do it like this, you know. But <laughs> sometimes when we're, we can remember is we we now intentionally take a break, which is not like, okay, just go cool down, but it's like an intentional, prayerful, meditative break where you go to God. And the, the, it's not like, God, help me forgive my spouse. It's like, God, tell me how I need to grow in this moment. What am I missing about my own stuff right now? And the idea is that you come back and we say, we don't say, okay, David, this is what I need from you, or I'm feeling really hurt. You say, I need to be more patient, or I need to be more kind with how I'm talking. You know, I take responsibility for my stuff. And as soon as one of us will say something like that, it's like everything melts away, right? <laughs> All the like the pain and the anger and the frustration that melts away because you see your partner taking responsibility for their first blessing. And even if it's not the stuff I wanted him to take responsibility for, right? Because <laughs> I know the answer. But because he does or because I do, it melts It melts all of that away. So yeah, that's the first point is like this. You have to take responsibility for your first blessing stuff. And we encourage each other more and more. Like when we start to sense the stress or the unkindness, you know, this the, the not being as patient with each other, there's an encouragement of like, do you want to take a walk? Do you want to take some time for you to get more centered personally and hear God's voice for you? Because we know it impacts our marriage. So 
Yeah, and I, go ahead. that's a really good point that it's most likely God's voice, like that intimate, beautiful sense of oneness and, and familiarity and intimacy with God the divine, if it's a point about how you can improve. Because I do know somebody in our high noon world, and he was telling me that his mom would always pray and be like, God told me you need to listen to everything I say. And like, like, just like very manipulative. So if, if you're like, if you come out of the prayer room and like, God said that you're exactly wrong and I'm exactly right, probably maybe go back and, you know, steep yourself a little bit more in God's love. I'm not sure um, that was God's voice in that moment, right? Like <laughs> no. some other voice in you. <laughs> yeah, some darker voice. So that's, no, that's a great point because... I really feel like oh, when you are connected to God, then you feel connected to all things. So the separation, you want to stop being separated from your loved ones or from anything. So it would you'd be able to identify what is it that's blocking us much more than, oh, I can see exactly all of your faults. That's bunk. <laughs> that's the, Anyway. Okay, so that's good. Anything else? Anything else? Something that pops in your mind? Yeah. So I think that that's like the spiritual internal component. But then I think the other side of it is actually we have these two phrases we say to each other. Like before we used to, when we would go on date nights, we would try to be very intentional and we discovered each other's thing. So I say to David, like, I want to be friends with you, that kind of language, being friends. And he says to me, I want to cherish the time we have together because that's what I'm looking for, right? Is more deeper, intimate connection. And he's looking for joyful happiness. So I think the other aspect, which I'm not really good at, but when I think about being a radiant couple is, is having fun together. If, if I've got the deeper internal stuff, I think some, maybe in some couples, one side is more like we need to be more internal and stuff like that. And that's good and necessary and it's the foundation. But if we're not like celebrating that in our life and dancing in the kitchen and, you know, having laughing fits together and playing stupid games with our kids, then we're missing the point. Life isn't just this like deep internal space. It's also this ridiculously fun and enjoyable experience. So I can be good at it. <laughs> David is better at it. And when I am good at it, it's awesome, right? Like we can, we laugh together. We have fun together. We go on adventures with the family and that changes the dynamic, right? If you have these fun memories together where we're celebrating life, then there's like, a, there's like permanent endorphins weaved into your relationship. So I think you need both the internal and the external. It's fantastic. So, bungee jumping? What do you guys do? Gosh, no. I, I, it's really simple. <laughs> Clogging? What do you do? <laughs> I mean, when you have little kids, it's not like you can like get out and do much. And very rarely do we go out without our kids. So it's very simple. Like, let's go on a bike ride in the park, or we have this like secret little hidden beach we found on the the B and O trail, and. We take the kids there and we build together and play in the stream and that kind of stuff. Just getting out and making memories and having fun. And we have a list of all the places in the area that we like to go and see. So we try to go like once once a weekend to something like that. But usually free, right? Just in nature and having fun together. Yeah, just naked and unashamed, right? As a family. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Anyway, there's there's a lot to chew on with this. I really like that. And I'm so glad that you are helping to redefine woman's fed and and going into this realm of, of womanhood. This is clearly a hot topic. What is a woman? What does it mean? And what is it and what does it not mean? What's real and what are we what's contrived and what's societal? Blah blah blah. So we're actually it seems like humanity's being boiled down to our base elements and we have to yeah. figure things out from the ground up, which is probably the best thing that can happen to us. It's painful to get boiled into a hot, hot sludge, but at the same time, that's how the only way that we can actually create something real is just, you know, kind of, I don't want to say burn it all to the ground because that sounds like, you know, I'm an agent of chaos, but I just mean, I feel like you're going into well-trodden territory, but as a fresh person with a fresh perspective that will create some new, I don't know, space for us to understand more stuff. And I appreciate you. I appreciate you, as they say. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate Oh my you. God. <laughs> I don't even think you know, but Korea. somehow I'm, I'm in this Providence too, because my shirt is purple and you can't see but no, and I, I chose see. this nobody bought this for me so it looks good I'm invested in the providence of women so anyway please yeah please please keep it up I know you're not going to stop and bring back your findings let us know how we can incorporate these new findings that you're privy to and the fact that you're steeped in this work because all of us need to understand how to respect women. Women need to learn how to respect themselves and other women. Men need to learn how to respect them. We all got to figure this thing out. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for stopping by. And any last words of wisdom? What's the, what's the greatest thing you could tell anybody ever? Blow our minds. Well, what, what I want to say is thank you to you and thank you to your team because, I mean, you know, we're in different worlds, sort of, but I know what it's like, right? I know what it's like to feel responsible for an area and to keep pushing and maybe not always get the recognition and the appreciation that is needed for this kind of work. But you guys have been so consistent for so long that it's really something to be proud of. And yeah, I just want to say I'm grateful for you. And everybody who's listening is is grateful for you. You make more of an impact that I think Maybe sometimes you realize it, but the rest of us who are over here, we appreciate you too. Appreciate it. If this whole woman's fed thing doesn't work out, you always have a home here at High Noon. That's good to know because you never know with our, our church. We got you. You're on our radar, <laughs> Kaylee. Thanks, guys. Right. I appreciate it. Thank you.